and welcome to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute, podcast number six. What do Mark Knopfler, Simple Minds, Ali Bain, Big Country, The Blue Nile, Wet Wet Wet, Prefab Sprout, Nazareth and a whole host of other bands have in common about today's podcast? Well, I'm with Callum Malcolm, who's recorded all of them and a lot more besides. This is going to be an amazing interview. I've really been looking forward to this, as I have said this about all the past podcasts, but this one's no different, and this one's really special. Callum's a fantastic producer. Callum, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jed. Nice to see you after all these years. Callum, how did it all begin? You have, When I was looking at your uh, website, I was just absolutely astounded by the... Not just the amount, but the range of different types of music that you've recorded. And I want to explore that a little later, but how did it all begin? Well, I think the first uh, experience I had of recording would have been with my dad's tape recorder, because he had one. Uh, Lots of people did back then, but he had one and I used to muck about with it and not really understand what I was doing. Was that a reel-to-reel? It was a, Everything was, yeah. This would have been 1960 or 61. So how um, big was it? Um, was it, it massive? It was a ferrograph. Um, so it was a big, heavy machine um, and sort of semi-professional. Uh, and he just used it to record stuff off the radio. Um, okay. Uh, and that's what I did as well, recorded stuff off the radio. Was that legal back then? Yeah, uh, I think it was. I think I don't think there was any problem with that. Yeah, okay. you would record concerts, Radio Three concerts is what I used to enjoy doing because they would have been one-off things. Of and uh, I wish I still had half of those tapes, to be honest. What, uh, what were they? They actually recorded onto quarter-inch tape. Quarter-inch tape. That's it. Um, stereo. Oh no, mono, of course. Um, uh, that was a mono machine. But my physics teacher at school had the stereo version, which was mind blowing, <laughs> and he eventually coerced me into doing all the school concerts with it. Um, and he taught me a bit about it. Uh, he was a great teacher. I just I loved him, and uh, we, we were very fortunate. We just had a great physics teacher, which gave an interest anyway in that side of things. Um, and he had a couple of microphones, and we used to set up a a pair of microphones in the school hall and record the appalling orchestras or whatever we were doing. And are you saying that the school orchestra was as bad back then as they are now? They always are, of course yes. they are. Screeching um, away. Everyone doing their best. But yes. Um, but that gave me a taste for it, and um, at the same time, um, I was in the school choir, and it was kind of a chamber choir, and apart from having a good physics teacher, we had a great and enthusiastic music teacher. And I'm sure this is a theme for a lot of people who have ended up in our business. If you got a good start, if you had a, a, a good teacher way back when you were 10 or 12 years old, what a difference that makes to the rest of your life. And he was exceptional, I think. And he was responsible for getting my interest in harmony in particular and teaching me about harmony. And it was only singing, nothing else. Um, I hadn't. I was taking piano lessons at the time, but it was just it was usual school piano lessons. Um, but he was good at harmony, and we became quite a good wee choir, and were invited to sing now and again uh, uh, and broadcast. The BBC asked us to go and sing at Queen Street, the old studios at Queen Street in Edinburgh, and then we made a recording um, at Craig Hall Studios in Edinburgh. So, so were you based in Edinburgh at the time? Uh-huh. Your family were from Edinburgh. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And um, we, uh, there was a, Benjamin Britten had written an operetta called The Golden Vanity, uh, and it had never been recorded, though it had been performed. And he was still alive at the time. Um, and we rehearsed and went to Craig Hall Studios, which is owned by Bryce Lane, a well-known figure. Basically, that was the only studio in Scotland at the time. There was only one. Uh, and it was a proper professional studio. It was all the best gear and he worked for EMI a lot and he had a company called Waverley Records I think this would have been in the 50s and 60s and I'm specifically at the moment talking about 1967 about that time Um, and I was uh, gobsmacked going into a studio I thought it was the best thing ever and was it it big was it reasonable size was it 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 all that sort of wooden well I had slot hack 
on the walls, which was kind of a slotted material. You used to see it at the BBC, properly done. And um, and it was all Neve and Studer and all the best stuff. Not that I knew at the time what it was. So how did he manage to fund all that at that time? How did he do it? He, he Did he not have a shop called George Def Jeffries up the bridges in Edinburgh? Right. Um, and Jeffries was a kind of home store. So fur soft furnishings, that sort of thing. And they were very successful. And this was long before the days of chain stores and big, you know. So he was using that to fund his real passion? I think he did, yeah. And he maybe had a hi-fi department there. I'm not really particularly aware of that side of it. I never went to the store, but I know my mum and dad would say, oh yeah, Jeffries is a, it was like Jenner's, kind of, that right. sort of thing, but not as posh or big, but it was more, and just so, so it was one of the institutions uh -huh. in Edinburgh at the time. And Bryce either, I don't know if he owned it or it was in his family or something like that. And he used that money from that, I think, to fund Craig Hall. But Craig Hall was successful. Some great stuff, all the pilot stuff came out of that. Really? Billy Lyle was the piano player at the time for Pilot um, and he was the engineer and he was a great engineer um, at Craig Hall Studios back in the I suppose the, the late 60s this oh. or early 70s um, and Bryce also had a mobile truck um, and he used to, he was responsible for recording the Edinburgh tattoo but also um, the These uh, guys must have cleaned up Oh it was amazing, they did all the EMI recordings at the time and, e and EMI Waverley was a record and it would have been Kenneth McKellar and all the, you know, Andy Stewart, all the... Well, all the stuff my grandma had. Yeah. She exactly. had all the albums. All that stuff. So that yeah. would all have been done by Bryce, probably. Or some of it was done in London, Abbey Road and all that. You know, they would have, because they were big stars at the time. Yeah. Sold a lot of records. But he used to do the Royal Tournament as well at Earl's Court. Um, yeah. Was that with the gun carriages and all, all that? that stuff? Yeah, it's like yeah. a, uh, it's like the tattoo. It's the same thing, yeah. the, the, um, the Royal Tournament. Same kind of thing, but it was indoor. Uh, and Bryce used to take his truck down and, and do it... Um, and it was very good, actually. That again, again, gave me a, an interest just going and doing that recording. Um, I do remember my voice breaking during the recording, okay. which was catastrophic for me because I had to stop halfway through and not be singing anymore. So I was relegated to turning pages um, for the pianist. <laughs> my chief memory was turning over two pages at once and, uh, and messing everything up, of course. <laughs> uh, my, my, and, uh, my first major mistake in a recording studio well many. turning pages without making any noise is a, a lot of it's like a talent, it's oh, a talent absolutely yeah. do you think maybe there's a job for me in yeah. that page turner um, <laughs> but that that was the spark for the whole thing so so was what was the main i guess motivation behind it or driver was it the technology was it the creativity was it a meld of both of these a real com combination of a love of music and uh, and this whole idea of being able to record music, I thought it was a, uh, and I didn't listen to much pop music at the time. I just didn't because my dad was crazy on twentieth century classical music. He was totally into it. Stockhausen, Stravinsky, Bartok, all of that. That's all we grew up with in our house. You know, the Blood uh, Red Moon and all uh, that uh, stuff. And that was a big influence as well. You know that whole thing. And I only came to pop music much later because he wasn't listening. My brother loved classical music as well. And so I never really got much exposure. In fact, I got more exposure at school to popular music. Yeah. Um, what, what was the um, the size and weight of the equipment back then? I take it it was all pretty huge. Yeah, well, it, it didn't really change that much. It, it improved greatly up until they stopped doing the analogue stuff or the heavy digital stuff. But it really, from then until about the year, about to the mid-90s, nothing much changed. It just got better. Analogue got better and better. Um, and it was still great big consoles and great big tape machines and everything cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, so from there, what was your route into actually in starting to record? Mm -hmm. When I finished school, I was off to do astronomy at St Andrews. Um, and in the holidays, I got a job at Hi-Fi Shop, the top of Leith Walk, Hi-Fi Corner, um, which altogether seemed far more interesting than... Astronomy. Did that go right into the seventies? The Hi-Fi Corner still open. Still open. Yeah, I yeah. thought. I, yeah. Passed it yesterday. Unbelievable. The day before yesterday. Yeah. Um, a nice guy ran it. A guy called Russ Andrews. Um, and uh, I went to work in my summer holidays there. I asked him if we had a job, um, and they they did. Um, so I was just a lackey and enjoyed it. But I really, really enjoyed it. And customers used to come in. This was nineteen seventy-two, maybe two or three. I would have said. Okay. Um, and customers used to come in and some of them used to ask about recording 
just anyone do recordings because again there wasn't an industry up here back then i mean london had all the studios but edinburgh had pretty much nothing craig hall was it it would have been thor in glasgow which went on to become savar um right and so the guy uh, who had the shop said yeah hi callum will do recordings for you so he had all the gear there for well you to no use. we just had a tape recorder but i had two microphones that were good I, I i use all in fact that was the reason i wanted that job because i saved enough from that and caddying at the golf courses um t during the holidays to buy two microphones was that the golf courses out here in east yeah, lothian at that time we lived down in gullen ah we'd moved right. out so um for all for all those out there and i know there's a lot of listeners in america um east lothian which is about 20 miles east of edinburgh is just full of golf courses mm. isn't it Carl? yeah so, I mean, there's six, about, I think there are five or six in Gullan. Although Muirfield is in Gullan, where the British Open's held. Right. Um, but and I used to carry on Muir, a caddy on Muirfield. That's what I did. Wow. One pound around from the members, or two pounds fifty from the Americans. Wow. So I take it two fifty back then was massive. It was incredible. Yeah. So how much? Was do you remember up, how much these microphones cost? Thirty-five quid. And mm -hmm. you got any idea of what that would be in today's money? I don't know. No, I've still got them. You still got them? Oh, yeah. So, right. so with the... Calrec 1050s, if you're interested. Say that again? Calrec. Calrec. CM 1050 is the model. Wow. Aye. So, the two of them. do you still yeah. use them? I, uh, no. Why? They don't sound very good. All right. cheap. <laughs> <laughs> they were cheap. <laughs> I just wondered that <laughs> with okay. age, you know, mm. um, like, uh, you would want to get that original kind of sound, but it doesn't work like that. Mm. The stuff, the, the good stuff, even back then was pretty dear, um, right. and took a, you know, it took, took me a long time to get to that point where I could afford decent microphones. But that summer, I just worked, and I said to my mum and dad, "Listen, I'm not going to do astronomy," and and I don't think they were that crestfallen actually, because I mean, what, I mean, astronomy, I mean, great fun, I suppose. I don't think I was good enough. I don't think my maths would have been good enough at the end of the day. And, and uh, you know, you have to be pretty smart to get, get away with doing astronomy. And I think I, I think I was lucky to so, have avoided so it. So is this back 1972? Yes. Right. Were you, were you at that uh, time thinking there was a ninth planet? Well, there was and there still is. Well, I know this is the thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Downgrading one. The tenth one. Or Niburu. a ninth one, which it? I don't agree with at all. But Niburu. Yeah. Or whatever it the, is. The I bringer think. of death. Yeah. Anyway, that's for another podcast. Uh -huh. No, but... <laughs> But, but but there was a vague... My sister-in-law's sister's husband was an astronomer. Mm. And um, he took me around the... Um, he worked at the um, observatory. Funnily enough, he taught my wife, Yvonne, he taught her astronomy at, at, at university. No, she's not an astronomer. She did geography. But every geographer at that point was taught some astronomy. Oh, really? And... and um, um, and and he had taught her. He, uh, he she went to his lectures, and he took me around the observatory. I mean, it was totally mind blowing. It was great what they were doing, and just to see the basics of how it worked, because you know the way that they always look at negatives, never at positives. They look at you know, the star maps that they look at are white with black marks on it, because it's dead easy to see, as opposed to the other way around, and all that stuff. I was really hooked and fascinated. And I thought it'd be a great thing to have done. Actually, it would have been great. It would have been interesting. Yes, but the best sort of talking, you'll end up going running off there. No, because you just be you have one huge eye. <laughs> Do you know the 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 problem? Since we're talking about, I mean, I, I find astronomy fascinating, but it's just that I'm always under the impression that you're kind of. Just as you're dying, they're going to find something else that's yeah. more interesting. No, <laughs> At least with music, you know, there's a, an end yeah. result. Yes, <laughs> So you saved up for these microphones, and you're getting work from Hi-Fi. Start doing recordings, as simple as that. They were all location things, and they'd be they would be things like school choirs or amateur groups or whatever, and something that you could record with two microphones. Um, and I made my mind up at that point. Um, Actually, that's what I wanted to do. I really wanted to do that. But I wanted to do it myself, somehow. Um, so, what did, what, I carried on. What, what, did, what was the real buzz about it, Callum? Was it just the capture of sound? Oh, yeah, to yeah. begin with it was. Mm -hmm. uh, how, to, yeah, how to try and make record it and make it sound real, somehow. I don't think I was interested at all in production. Just recording. 
I like the idea of being able to listen to somebody and then record it and for it to sound the same if possible. That was the interest for me to begin with. So once you had recorded it, what did you do with the recordings? Well, the people used them. They would be made into records. Quite a few of them, you know. They were just there was no mixing or anything. That was it. The recording would be cut and and that's it. That's someone, yeah, and that's all. That was the way it happened. And I, I guess it was a very expensive process to get something a record. I cut. think it was probably not prohibitively, but yeah, would have been dear. And I suppose about that time, cassettes were coming in. Well, they were. They were becoming popular, and you could get cassettes duplicated probably quite a bit cheaper than um, doing records. So that that was a big thing as well. Uh, so you're starting to record. What what was was there a break or was it just a an um, an evolution of what you were doing? Uh, I mean, was there something that happened that that really got you noticed and, and led to a lot more work? And well, not really. I began to pick up a bit of pace, and I stayed on at Hi-Fi Corner and worked there for another year full-time job after the summer holiday and I enjoyed the sensation of earning money as well I mean, great first job it's a great feeling and uh, and then I briefly went to Napier University and did electronics for a while I did what a course in electronics I was going to do a degree but I stopped I did it up to a point and stopped um, it wouldn't have been a degree. No, it would have been an HND. HND, a three-year course yes, language. Yes, um, at that point, because Napier was a college. Yes. Uh, it's funny because I was talking to Philip Thorne recently and he was yeah. talking about Napier and how it used to be the the College of Commerce or something that was called, something like yeah, that. I think it might have been, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, that's right. It was just that campus at um, Merkiston, at uh -huh. the Holy Corner there. Yeah. Um, but that actually taught me quite a lot that year. It was good. I had a good lecturer there. I have no idea. I can't remember his name now, but it's a long time ago. Um, and then I thought that was it. I still was working at Hi-Fi Corner. It was a you know, part-time thing. And uh, I thought, this is it. I'm just going to open a recording studio. So I had very little equipment, stereo tape recorder, and by then maybe four or five microphones of varying. Still my two originals, which were the best two, and some cheaper rubbish. And uh, I rented a room. I just and it was back in the day when you could do stuff like that. You didn't need to jump through every hoop, and I still had to go to the bank um, and start a. Uh, it wasn't a limited company. It was a just a I don't know what it was, sole trader or whatever. Yeah. It would have been called something else. Yeah. But a business at the time had to open a bank account. Basically, that was all, uh -huh. and and register not even register it. Just have a bank account. And um, I rented a room at the top of Dublin Street. Um, and called it Castle Sound, and that was 1974. And I built a place out of egg boxes and all the rubbish and divided the room with a stud, did all the work, of course, with a couple of pals. And um, So Dublin Street's uh, in off, the new town, right, isn't it? Right off St Andrew's Square. Right. Yeah, very close to the middle. I mean, again, you wouldn't be able to think about that today, but that was so long ago, and space was cheap. So, so what, what were you recording in there? Immediately everyone. I mean, it was astonishing because there wasn't much going on. Um, there weren't really. There was a radio REL studios, uh -huh. another studio in Edinburgh. Craig uh, Hall still on the machines? go. No, Athol Crescent at oh, the time, or yeah. Athol Place, sorry, yeah. on just before Haymarket. Right. Laterally in Sheens. Right. So you were recording uh, drums in this place? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I hadn't soundproofed it, but it was above a betting shop. Nobody bothered, and it was shut at night, you know, so right. it was fine. You could record all the time. And... I mean, within a year, you know, the Bay City Rollers were there doing, and that was 1975, and they were huge at that time. So how did, so they just contacted Aye, you? they just came in. In fact, they came to buy, I had upgraded things by then because business was coming in, and I'd bought a four-track machine, um, and that maybe about a year into its life was not suitable. I wanted to get something better, and I put it for sale, probably in the paper, in evening news it would be. And they phoned up and came and bought it and saw it was a studio and booked in. And we did loads of demos and stuff. Loads of stuff for a couple of years. They were there a lot. Good customers. The evening news. I would have advertised. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Uh, <laughs> I know. It, it's, it's, there's such sort of synchronicity and all that. It just all makes... Small community then, though, yeah. Jed. You know, there wasn't... I mean, a long time before the internet, before anything else like that, the communities were smaller and, and people would be in touch more. People, Everyone would read a paper at night yes. or their mums or whatever. You know, people would pick up the evening news. Or people it was would the be font of all human knowledge and by the, then. You know, or the Herald or the Scotsman. Yeah. It didn't, or the Glasgow, or, or the Evening Times. I, I mean, that was about it, wasn't it? How else did you get information? Um, 
So, so you're, and I take it once you're recording the Bay City Rollers, that's going to get the word out big time, is it? Well, it, I mean, there was always a good stream of work, and then Robin Morton used to come in with. Uh, I started doing quite a lot of folk music or traditional music, as you'd call it today, but it was just the Boys of the Loch. I did a number of albums with them. Ali Bain uh, was in the band at the time, and uh, and um, so we did lots of albums. The Battlefield Band, just some really lovely albums. About 1976, I felt I kind of knew what I was doing. I began to get a grip of it by then, I think. So you've been recording for how long? That would have been three years in, really. Or, so or, uh -huh. This is something that, I, you know, Obviously, I've been around recording studios a lot and do a little bit of uh, recording myself, but, you know, just uh, on a... a I, I don't want to say a semi-pro basis, but it is. But how um, how did you find actually recording different styles of music? Did, did you find there was... Did you have to work differently depending hmm, on what was there? Absolutely differently, because I still had a... Uh, classical music was still something that you would never record in a small studio. You would do it at Abbey Road Studio One, but you wouldn't do it in Castle Sound, uh, or you'd maybe do a quartet at the most. But that was still something in my mind that you did in a concert hall or a recital hall or a church, because the acoustic was a very important part of what that type of music is. It depends on it in many ways, um, whereas pop music's made up much more and very close might and at the time I mean things change of course but that was the perception at the time pop music was quite dry and close and dead sounding so you had lots of control and separate things were separated and classical music and jazz were the opposite where everything kind of spilled into well jazz was kind of in between those two where you needed some control but um it wasn't so dependent on an acoustic and I just learned all that as I went along and the one thing I really wish I'd had was a good teacher at that point. I don't mean going to college to do it. What I mean is I kind of wish I'd been in a recording studio for a couple of years as a tape op like they used to be and learn from a great engineer. That would have been good. That would have taken years off what I had to do, I think. I would have got better quicker. Well, I have on my list of questions here um, to talk about music education um, or education sound production. It's kind of far down the list, but seeing that you brought it up, it might be a good time to talk about that. But before I do, I just want to say this is GMI, Guitar and Music Institute. Uh, you're listening to me, Jed Brocky, speaking with sound producer Callum Malcolm. Callum, let's carry on and talk about music education then. Um there are so many courses now uh, on sound production. Seems like they're churning out hundreds of these people every year. Um, what do you think of them? Well, there are some good ones. There's no doubt about it. Um, but they're few and far between. I do think that. And I don't think anyone... I can't imagine many people going into these courses thinking they're going to come out and get a job. Uh, in a recording studio for a number of reasons. Um, there aren't really very many recording studios these days. Um, and the few that there are, and I'll give you an example here, um, Snap Studios in London, which is run by um, or owned by Mark Thompson. Funky Junk is a, a supplier of new and used recording equipment and Mark's old school and he opened a lovely studio in London, very well equipped. It's been pretty successful. Um, lots of others have closed down, but they're going and they advertised last year or the year before, I can't remember, for a new assistant. And the only qualification that the assistant had to have was not having done any course at college. Wow. So it sort of sums it up. That was the requirement. Is that because, um, well, were they wanting to mould someone in their own yeah. fashion? They want to teach, they, do, they don't want to be learning, they don't want someone who comes in who's a total whiz on Pro Tools and can do it upside down but don't can't hear, can't listen to what they're doing and are obsessed by equipment, which is a lot of the problem. People seem to think equipment makes a difference. My personal view is equipment makes almost no difference when you're making a record. Uh, I don't particularly care what microphone I'm using. I do to a certain extent, but in general... I'll tell you what a good microphone is. Er, the one that's closest to me at the time, 
and providing it's within parameters, that'll be fine. It's the one that we're going to set up and use. There are some things that I wouldn't use on certain instruments, but by and large, <clears throat> it's nothing to do with that. It's the noise that the people are making. People pull their hair out about vocal microphones and what's good and what's bad. Uh, it doesn't matter, really. I mean, I can make a, put a good singer in front of a Shure 57, which is about 90 quid, and put them in front of a, an Oyman U47, which at the moment is about 13,000 quid, an old one, um, and uh, you'll be fairly pushed to tell the difference, really. Wow, that yeah. is an incredible thing to They're hear They're very, say. very similar in many ways, and a lot of people know this. There's, it's different, So is it the, but it's not Is it marketing? Different. I think it's just, uh, well... In terms a, of... There's a lot um, of bullshit, frankly, but there's a lot of people using the equipment uh, almost as an excuse. It's an obsession. I, it's just people use different mic preamps for this, that, and the next thing. I'm sorry. It, it really doesn't matter. If you've got someone who sounds great, they will sound great. And no amount of equipment and tweaking is going to make them any better. I mean, well, you can't polish a turd. Well, you can if you freeze it, of course. But So we're getting to the, the heart of the, the interview here. And, um, but before we get there, um, in terms of students of sound production, and I, when I say that, what I mean is someone who's interested in it, not necessarily on a course... What would you say uh, is the biggest thing that uh, someone who's interested in getting into sound uh, needs? I really think they need a firm grip of music, first of all, um, which they can keep hidden if they like, but they need a really firm grip of it. Uh, can um, I say you're the only person who I've done recording with who's ever asked, do you have a score, which just blew me away. Well, a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of people like me who, who do it, you know, who understand it. And, you know, we may not be great musicians at all, or, or even musicians, but we can read and understand music. And How enough, does that help us in the recording well, process? Well, it helps enormously in anything orchestral, of course, because you have to be able to navigate quickly and you have to speak to a conductor and liaise with the orchestra. Uh, otherwise, you're lost. So that's important. Um, in pop music, but still, you know, there are, plenty of areas in pop music where there are string arrangements and a lot of it can be scored and if you're doing film music it's fantastically useful to be able to use a score to navigate and also look at a shape try and understand what the clients you know what they're trying to do just to get an understanding a broad understanding it's very good to have the thing on paper in front of you not always absolutely not always and this won't appeal or apply to everyone it's helped me a lot just having a reasonable grip uh, and also when you're working with, if you're doing jazz or stuff that's got um, awkward time signatures, there's too many people coming out that don't understand much more than 4-4 four, four or they don't really get it and they can't count properly. And This is uh, uh, the, the, so, so in, uh, amazing what you're talking about here because when I think of all these courses, sound production courses, as far as I'm aware, the one thing they don't have is, a, uh, is periods where there are, or lessons they're actually listening to music yeah and, and understand the process the so for example there are a few and everyone knows about the tonmeister course the surrey course which is still probably the best course and these guys every time i work with them they're totally great you know phil hobbs at lynn is fantastic and uh robert gamage who works for lynn and he's a tonmeister as well and um it's it's a pleasure to work with these guys because they're a i presume they're taught attitude in other words don't have one and and be able to meld and fit in in any situation. I think the social skills are really very important in all of this. Um, and uh, I think they're well taught in that course. They understand the theory. The, the course basically is physics and music, and that's, uh, it makes a big difference. The guys coming out of that, they mostly get employed, and the BBC will take them because they know straight away that this... You don't have to think about it. They're, they're taught the right way. But for courses that are purely technology and learning how to work uh, or operate programs successfully, like Pro Tools or Logic or whatever, my feeling is two weeks is plenty. Two weeks, teach someone everything they need to know about operating that and then send them off to do it and learn th learn it. So, Callum, within that, do you, um, do you have a... 
this is an odd one because I hear people talking about desks having sounds and mm. programs having sound. I don't really get that, but um, do you strive to create a specific um, sound, a Callum Malcolm sound almost, or are you purely focused on just capturing the the best image of the sound that's made and an addendum to that? Um, if there was a Callum Malcolm sound, does it come in? post-production well i would say i i don't have an approach a callum malcolm sound um i i know i see it sometimes in reviews and people commenting about it and saying oh there's a 3d thing or there's space or whatever that's absolutely not a conscious thing though i think it's probably because of the my interest in classical music in particular and that type of recording in other words recording an event which has naturally got a 3D aspect to it, I probably subconsciously inject some of that sometimes into what I'm doing. But I would I would hate the idea of trying to imprint a sound onto somebody's record. My principal concern is to record them in the fashion that they wish to be recorded and make them sound the way they want to sound, so not the way I want them to sound. So the, the Blue Nile, for example, mm. um, I mean, they have a, right. such a, a distinct sound. But I think that's them. It, it just is them. That's what they are. Um, you, you could almost level the... Uh, it's, it's a musical thing for them. If you actually analysed it and look at the sort of shapes that are being played, the sort of thing that Paul Buchanan or Paul Moore, the, the type of notes that Robert Bell plays on the bass, it's different to anyone else. It's, they have their unique sound and lots of bands have that. It's a great thing. I think that's their sound. Uh, I think it's more to do with the harmonic content than the recorded aspect of it. That's my personal opinion. They set up moods through the what they're doing, not how they sound. I know the space and some of it. That's because the space and the music. You know, they've they've made that space. That's the arrangement, not what I do. I think. You are listening to GMI Guitar and Music Institute. My name is Jed Brocky and. I'm in a conversation with Callum Malcolm, a sound producer, and we've just been talking about sound. But you mentioned earlier, Callum, about Lynn Records. Hmm. Now you had a, 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 you've done a lot of work with Lynn. Could could you maybe tell the listeners about Lynn? Uh, Lynn produce high quality um, hi-fi, don't they? And yeah. Lynn Records was an offshoot of that. Correct. Could you maybe tell us a little. Okay, I met Ivor T from Bryn. Who, um, whose company is Lynn um, in 1975. Uh, just, I think they opened in 1974 or 75, which is when I opened Castle Sound. And I met Ivor th- because of my, I'd been working in the hi-fi shop before, so I knew about hi-fi a bit. And uh, he insisted that he could provide me with a pair of monitor speakers. Um, and he did. Uh, and they were appalling. Uh, and they uh, blew up almost immediately. And um, but we still got on fine. They were hi-fi speakers and didn't work in the professional environment. They just wouldn't. Um, it was the wrong kind of thing. Uh, but we got on very well over the years and stayed in touch. And eventually they decided to um, experiment with cutting records. And they bought a, a lathe. I think it might have been a scully, but I can't remember. So a record cutting lathe back in the sometime in the early eighties. This would have been or very late 70s. Uh, by this time I'd moved studio. Um, I'd, I'd moved out of Edinburgh and moved into the old school in Pencateland in East Lothian. <clears throat> so still Castle Sound, but a much bigger operation. Um, and properly professional, and uh, really, which and the studio still exists today. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic place. <clears throat> it's a good place. I sold it in 1998 to Freeland Barber and, and the place uh, with Stuart Hamilton as the engineer. And it's still a joy to go to, and I still loved being there. Um, but while I was there, um, I still had a great relationship with Lynn, and um, they bought this lathe, they started cutting records, and at that point they decided to start a record label and called it Lynn Records. Um, I provided the first recordings for that, including the Blue Nile, funnily enough, that was because we'd been working together, and that was a seemed to work as an idea. Um, I took the stuff we'd been doing to Lynn and they liked it and they released the first album um, and the second album um, but um, <clears throat> we did a lot of jazz stuff Carol Kidd as well um, and began to do more and more and did they Martin started Taylor. doing Martin Taylor um, 
and then that grew, you know, Stephen Grappelli, all these great artists and great fun. Um, what was it like meeting Sniff? Oh, he was good, yeah. I've got so I found we actually, because we're moving house, I, um, we were digging out all the old photos recently, my wife are, and I were looking for, and there's some great photos of us in Paris with Stephen Grappelli. Where else? I know, I know, because uh, um, we did a couple of albums with uh, him and Martin Taylor. Does Disley? Was he on that one? Who? Does Disley? On oh, rhythm guitar, mm. no, because Martin was the second guitarist. Right, I don't think I don't remember that. No, I don't um, remember that. I, I, mm. I saw. I was lucky to see uh, Stefan twice actually, and oh. a fantastic pianist. Mm -hmm. Did he? Did you record him playing piano? Just fiddle, just, just fiddle. violin. Yeah, more <laughs> reverb, monsieur. More <laughs> reverb. <laughs> it was mostly that was the instruction. I mean, I couldn't have given him any more. He, <laughs> he loved it. He loved it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you feel about the whole uh, Lynn thing? Is it, is it an episode of your life that's now completely finished? No, no, we still do stuff. I did a, an, an album last year for Lynn um, in um, New York with Barb Younger, the um, cabaret jazz singer. Uh, I love Barb. She does these fantastic deconstructed records, Bob Dylan, um, Jacques Brel, that sort of thing. She'll pick an artist and take a group of songs and then really deconstruct the original thing and take it down to either a very still piano arrangement. And, and she gets killer musicians to play with her. Very good, actually. We did it at the Hip Factory, so we had a bit of fun there. Fun. Nice studio. Um, so, and I still help Philip Hobbs now and again doing larger orchestral sessions, and sometimes I'll do them. If he's not able to do them, I'll, I'll do them. What has been the... I'm going to go into almost quick fire, but... What's been the most difficult recording session? Is there one? I don't think... I can't really... I mean, there are technically difficult ones now and again. See, these military ones, I saw... The, the, yeah, the, I did a lot difficult? of stuff in the 70s. Um, in the late 70s in Germany. Um, Army of the Rhine recording. So, would have been the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, Blues and Royals... Um, uh, they were very straightforward. They were fantastically organised, of course, because of the army. And so I take it, the, I was thinking about this last night, are the mics set at the side of the field or the area? No, we do them inside. So right. they're done in big halls, rehearsal halls, or big, or, or big spaces. And right. they all have big spaces, these regiments, you know, for, for parading or whatever. And how, just how many mics would you use on something like oh, that? Oh, maybe, uh, but it wasn't that many. I think we probably used... In fact, I'm sure back in the day, I had a ch my portable mixer with 16 channels, so it would have been 16 mics. And the interesting thing is that they were all done direct to stereo, so no multi-track, just mixed, so you'd balance, and that was it, finished. Almost I think it's finished. called On The Fly. Yeah, too much. You'd have a, we, we, the record was two and a quarter hours for an entire album. Done. Finished. Boom. Yeah, in the... And it's still something I really enjoy. And in fact, the BBC asked me to do two or three years running. Um, in a, about ten years ago, I did um, the late night concerts and some of the principal concerts from the uh, Usher Hall during the Edinburgh Festival, the Radio Three broadcasts. So I ba I was balance um, uh, engineer for those, and it's a real thrill. It's great fun just doing it, and there's no rehearsal. Yeah. It's it's a it's a joy to do that. Um, the Neve desk. Hmm. Which Neve desk? There exactly. So you 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 love Neve, don't you? I still really like them. I've I still love. Uh, you know, they are different. Neves, SSLs, all that. The SSL was very successful. The SSL, uh, in when it came out, had quite a restricted sound to it, which made it totally suitable for doing a lot of pop music where you don't want everything to sound big. I think everyone seems to think that, oh, it has a great big fat sound, that's great. Well, you can't fit 40 great big fat sounds together. It doesn't work. So, Calm, do you have an image of what you want to create before you hear it, depending on what you're... Providing I've heard the music first, then I would think, yeah, I know where that could go. Absolutely. Um but the reason these, and, and there are so many great pop records made on SSL consoles and not on necessarily on Neve consoles, because I think the, the limit, the, the, the smaller in sound of the SSL and inverted commas really helped everything fit together. They were great at that. Neves could sound a bit big, 
actually. But for rock, a lot of people love Neves because there's not so much going on. There's not so many overdubs, whereas with pop, and if you're trying to put a lot in and there's a lot of sub or whatever, uh, SSL was a good choice, I think, back in the day. And Nowadays, though, I'm, I've always been comfortable with Neve. I do like, and I loved, I loved AMEC consoles in the day, and I had two great consoles. All that, you know, that's really what I, I lived. Uh, that's that's what I liked at the time. In the eighties, I thought AMEX were amazing. So behind you is a a smaller knee than I remember the last time I was here, mm, yeah. and you mainly do is it uh, mixing Mix. and mastering yeah. in, in this in this space? Some recording. Um, there's a vocal booth, and people like coming here and doing their vocals or their an overdub or guitars or something like that. But that's it. We've so, been in the studio or on location doing the main recording, and then come back right. here to finish. So would you? Have them hire out a room if there was drums and this yeah. and that. Yeah, yeah. we'll go to a studio or I'll just take stuff. I do a lot of stuff on location. Um, Preferably if, in Italy, I would thought. If I can get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> or Donegal. <laughs> or Donegal. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a load of albums with the Henry girls who are three three girls from Donegal and it's hysterically funny it's great fun it's always a complete shambles but we have a, an absolute ball and we, we usually record in their aunt's B&B in the bed and breakfast right in the living room <laughs> and, uh, and I take what I need on the plane um, I drive from here to Glasgow airport and I get the Ryanair flight from there to Derry right and that's 20 well, sometimes 19 minutes if you're lucky in the plane. or It's a full-size <laughs> plane. It's a proper big Boeing and yeah. all that. You get off at the other end 20 minutes later uh -huh. and go to their house and set up. And we spend a week there making a record. And then on the last day, I drive, or they drive me to um, Liam Bradley's house. Liam Bradley is a he's a world-class drummer. He's great. He's Van Morrison's drummer at the moment. But, I mean, he's, he's Ronan Keating's drummer and he's... Flavor boy, it plays with everyone. I mean, he's he's fantastic. I really love Liam, and he lives in a fabulous house on um, the banks of the Foyle there, um, uh, on literally on the water. It's a converted well hospital, I think it is. It's wow. it's like one big room, right. not a huge place, but it's a lovely spot. And he uh -huh. just has a massive drum kit set up in his living room, but his living room's twenty six feet high, something like that. <laughs> and he's got fabulous he's just got a pair of mics in the room. I don't take anything. I just plug into his system and we have a an enjoyable day or two recording drums and percussion there and then the record's done. So I, spinal tapish have a good time all it, the time. It's great. It's <laughs> it's I love recording like that. I like just going to spaces and houses and setting up and um it's good. Good well, fun. Favourite equipment? Got any favourite other than the Neve? Is there anything? The only thing I do like are there are certain microphones which are still useful, um, and of course they're impossibly expensive now. But but you know because I've been doing it for so long, I had them anyway. So you know, bought them when they were new and cheaper. So there are certain Neumanns that are good. Um, although I did get rid of my U forty seven recently, I, I found I wasn't using it so much. But forty nines Neumann M forty nine is a great microphone. Um, and the U67 is still pretty much unbeatable for acoustic guitar. I think it's. Uh, I've yet to find anything that quite does what that mic does. Has the march of technology, the constant change, etc., has that changed the way you record? Of course, yeah. Um, so we've progressed, really. I started with two track, then four, then eight, then 16, then 24, then 32 track digital, and then finally. Actually, then to 48-track digital and then over to DAWs, like Pro Tools and all the rest of it. I was quite late to all of that. I, I didn't enjoy it. I thought they sounded absolutely appalling to begin with. What do you mean by sounded? It, they, 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 they didn't do what the older machines did, um, any of the good digital machines. I like a machine that I can't hear, basically. Um, and we always strove for that, even with the analogue stuff. People now get two-inch machines and record onto them and then record onto Pro Tools, which, well, whatever, you know. <laughs> you, you, you can do that if you like, but, I mean, it just gives it a sound. If that's the sound you want, then fair enough, and there are some plugins that do that quite well as well. But What do you think of those plug-in emulators? I, I, yeah, they're fine if that's what you want, but, you know, I, I think there's quite a lot of us that did it anyway and are quite glad not to be doing it because 
We, you know, we always thought that two-inch machines sounded pretty crap back in the day. You know, you never got your snare drum to sound like it did real, ever. It was always a bit saturated, and it helped in some situations, and it flattened it and, and made it sit better in some situations. But if you were trying to record something and you wanted a lot of transient on it, you never really got that. And so digital recording was very interesting um, at the... Uh, for us, when it first came in, it was very interesting because you could record transients properly and you could record bass. It actually did record bass. Transients? Yeah, the, you know, a snare drum that sounded like the drummer played it in the room and not soggy when it came back. Um, but, of course, soggy became really fashionable. That's the thing. People then began to like that kind of thing. Um, and uh, it's horses for courses. I mean, you know, people really enjoy doing all that stuff and fair play. That's okay. If that's what you enjoy doing, then why not do it? For me, I'm not that interested in it. I prefer to, I like things to sound more like the source and I don't really go in for huge amounts of processing. A good compressor is a great tool and sometimes a bit of EQ, but I'm not mad for it, really. This is GMI, Guitar Music Institute, and you're listening to me, Jed Brocky, speaking to uh, producer Callum Malcolm. Okay, Callum, we're, we're coming to the end now. Just a few little questions left, really. Um, do you keep up with all the latest gadgets? Do you sound on sound? I used to buy that magazine all the time. Um, I don't know. <laughs> do you? It's it's just like a huge wish list of things. No, I I mean I never read. Uh, I don't really read the things. I don't read the magazines. I have to admit that. Um, I, I I was never that interested. Um, it's quite hard. I always found to find a bad review. For the, uh, they all seem to be uh, everything's great and frankly, funny that isn't it? Isn't it funny? Yeah, uh-huh. I, I don't expect they're getting them for nothing or anything, but you never know. But <laughs> how can you possibly read a, a a review of a piece of equipment that's glowing from beginning to end? Because you know perfectly well it's you know it doesn't really mean anything. So I'll, uh, so I never paid attention to any of that. You have to try something out for yourself and see if it's any good. Um, and a lot of the time. It's no different to something that's been before. I have no wish list at all. Of course, every plugin on the planet's available, and now and again you come across stuff that is genuinely useful. And that, there are a set of plugins that I use and enjoy. I like the Oxford stuff. Uh, um, I think it's good. Some of the Wave stuff is great. Some of the Slate digital stuff is great. Um, but uh, I don't really use tons and tons of it. Uh, it it's useful now and again it really is and if you're trying to shape something you can do almost everything that's interesting um that you can do almost everything if you're using it to shape things too much if you're using it just to to save a project it becomes less interesting i must admit and i i know everyone we've all been in that situation where you're having to save a, a project um and things become much less interesting at that point I must say but there are some amazing tools there that help you fix everything if you really need to do that so um, I hope I'm not uh, spoiling any confidences in the farm this will be cut out anyway so you're about to move um, out of here uh, to another part of Scotland um, do you, what projects are coming up and will it affect the kind of projects that you do um, yeah it's a good point we've been here 33 years now so and uh, huge amount of recording has gone on here apart from the stuff I've done in other studios but a lot of mixing and a lot of mastering so I need to build a new room and I'm thinking about that at the moment um, and I do have a lot of work on um, Japanese stuff that I've been doing over the last few years um, uh, Tell us about that, that sounds... Well I've kind of worked in Tokyo a lot um, since the mid 90s and uh, there are a few clients there and and they're st- <laughs> I'm still doing stuff for them. Uh, it's a totally different vibe, of course. Um, and their whole approach. Well, they've got incredible. Yeah, a lot about. Yeah. Oh, I mean, culturally, it's it's uh, it's quite alien, and it takes quite a bit of getting used to. Um, which is what I love about it. To be honest, it's so different to us, um, and they are so different. Um, it's actually refreshing that everyone's not the same. It's good. Um, uh, and I enjoy I, I enjoy working out there, but latterly, over the last few years, they send me stuff to mix. Um, and I've done a number of albums. Um, a band called Sing Like Talking, who are a big band in Japan. 
uh, older band. Um, it's always impeccably done, um, and the musicianship is outrageous. So is, is technology meaning mm. you're you're not getting to go to Italy, etc. No. anymore? They're just sending you stuff. They, 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 everything just comes over the wire now. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, but it's good and it's quick and doing revisions and sending mixes back. It's brilliant, of course. The internet's yeah. really but you miss out there. there. But you miss out on the trips. But they're still there. You know, I still get the trips, and there's still, oh, you know, there'll be something in Europe or America. Um, and uh, in fact, I was out recording in Australia last year. I was in Melbourne for a couple of weeks. So there's always something on like that. Yeah. Well, what music do you listen to, Carl? Um, do, do you get a chance to listen, listen to much music? I don't listen much now. No, um, I used to listen all the time. I listen rarely now because at the end of the day, the last thing I want to do is listen, carry on listening. And I find the older I get, ears get tired more, much more quickly. Um, there's a big difference there. I mean, it's very interesting the way hearing changes. Um, and I've noticed, of course, everyone's hearing deteriorates um, to a certain extent, some more than others. The benefit of having done something like this is if you haven't ruined your ears, um, and that's more a performance thing, playing on stage. And I used to play in bands, and if it's, you know, if you're next to a monitor, you're going to kill your hearing. You really are, and you're going to end up with tinnitus or whatever. If you've tried to help, you know, and not monitor too loud for most of your life, um, then your hearing will be, it'll be better later on. And the other thing is because you've trained your ears, you've been, you haven't deliberately trained your ears but your ears have been trained through your job then they work better later on um, I, I have the problem that most people have at my age which is if you're in a clattery restaurant it's pretty hard to hear conversation sometimes I, that doesn't happen when you're well, younger it's hard to hear conversation in restaurants now because everyone's on their phone it's a, the, uh, yeah and, and, and people <laughs> shout to someone else people shout too much because yes. they're terribly important it would appear yeah but um but uh, so uh, you know there is that thing but i I don't have a problem at all. For example, of course, my you know high frequency has gone a bit over the years. It's still pretty good. Um, it's nothing like it was when I was in my 20s. Um, and there are certain things you can miss, but um, not uh, sometimes. You, could, you, you, know, you might miss a bit of distortion that you would never have missed before. Um, but it's amazing what your brain can do because it's it's your brain that's analysing all of this and the mechanical part of your hearing may well have taken a few steps down. But because of experience and the the training thing that's gone in and the, the way you listen, you, you just automatically, clearly automatically compensate for it. Otherwise, I'd be doing mixes that were too bright and that doesn't happen. So obviously, because it's a fairly gradual process, your brain is compensating and you've got a, mu a memory, a sound memory in there somehow that you're comparing against all the time. So you know, you still know. Um, it'll go eventually. You know, it will start begin to, beginning to fail, but a few more years, I would have thought. So we're at the final question and I've really enjoyed talking with you, Calm. It's been really interesting hearing just almost this uh, history of uh, sound recording in, in Scotland and uh, I would urge anyone out there who you, you've listened to a record I'm sure or a mp3 or a some piece of music then Callum will have uh, unless you've lived in a cave Callum will probably be in some of them and and I would uh, encourage anyone to go to www.guitarmusicinstitute.com and look up this uh actual interview and even if you're listening on itunes go or on on uh, internet radio go to guitarmusicinstitute.com look up this interview and uh, i'll put a whole bunch of links and uh, to calm's website and you know his recordings and things like that so the last question is calm how do you see the evolution of audio recording what is its future hmm um, technically, it's not getting better. Uh, it's getting slow. It's way too slow for me. Um, I'll give you an example. At the moment, um, I'm working with Napier University, um, and we've been doing a project called the or with the Rogue Orchestra. Now they're a really interesting bunch of people. Uh, two girls have set up um, this idea where. 
to compete with some of the Eastern European orchestras. They've put an orchestra together made up of players from the SCO and others um, from all over Britain, in fact, who are keen to come together, be flexible in what they do and uh, basically are there to do string parts or film scores or whatever to the very highest quality and highest standard. Um, and we've done a couple of test sessions and the idea is that um, the producer of the film or the project may be anywhere in the world. Um, and I've been helping getting them going by producing the session locally. In other words, I will have the scores and I will liaise with the conductor and we'll record whatever the, the client wants to be recorded. But the client is on the other end of a link and they hear it in real time um, and they can comment on the process. Um, this is quite interesting because I did some tests, I think two years ago for Napier. Hmm. And it's a new internet link mm -hmm. where all the universities across Europe, maybe the world, are linked up at incredibly high speeds. Yes. And I was actually playing um, guitar and there was a double bass player somewhere in England mm -hmm. playing and we were hearing each other playing with virtually... No latency. No latency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, is, this the, is this part this of this? This is exactly it. The, the difference is we're not doing the performance remotely uh, i mean we're, we don't have musicians in different places we have the orchestra in a hall and i'm recording them uh, and it, but it's for a client in america and they the client is listening and commenting at the same time the problem is is that the communication system isn't working very well um at the moment um it will that's fine that's just a technical hitch but um we have noticed that the latency can't go below a certain amount uh, even the speed of light is way too slow. But here's the thing. People think the speed of light is infinitesimally fast. Well, apparently it is as fast as we're allowed to go, although there are theories that are, we'd like to disabuse that. I find it preposterous that things are as slow as the speed of light. Why should that be a limit? Why should that be the limit? It's very slow. Uh, if you think about it, this, if you're sending a signal, and it would never be at the speed of light, it should be. It was 50 years ago because you were picking up a phone and speaking to someone in America. No latency then. That was yeah, fine. Uh, why is it that the, the more technology goes on, the worse it gets? Well, this is what you I'm know, saying. Digital it's, radio. It's digital far too slow. Every, everything you see on the television, <laughs> the, 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 the commentator's standing there like a numpty for three seconds before they answer back. Well, I'm sorry. It's absolutely not good, good enough. It's appalling. Appalling. All the money that they can pump into it, and they can't get it in real time anymore. It's a joke. It's a complete joke. And, and so... I find all of that very slow and networked audio and all the problems that you can have with it. A piece of wire worked totally fine. And it's not as though the sound of things are getting that much better. I'm sorry, they're not. I, I still listen to masses of records and recordings that were made in the 50s and 60s that are still not classical in particular. They're not really much better today. Well, if you read the magazines, it's amazing that anything was recorded more than five yeah. years ago. Oh. Why are we still using cables, by the way? Well, because they're reliable and they're fast. Right. Is it there because the industry doesn't want to go any other no. way? You know perfectly well if these mics had been radio mics, somebody in a passing taxi would have ruined everything. I, I, I've no. I, I find technology. I find it obtrusive some of, a lot of the time and um, obstructive. To be perfectly honest, it's not quick enough. The way we record is quite slow as well. We've got all this fancy stuff going on. Pro Tool, unlimited tracks. You can do this, that, and the next thing. You know, you've got the senility factor built into Pro Tools, so even if you forget to press record, admittedly I do now and again, it's done it anyway in the background, so, you know, you're not a complete idiot. You can remember to press record at the end of the recording and you've that. recorded that something. That takes away for the amateurs yeah. the one thing. Yeah. That... But, you know, I have to say that the sharpness, and back in the day when you had limited track count, 24, say, and... Uh, if you had... Um, Is this necessity as a mother of invention? Well, absolutely. If you'd recorded a vocal and it wasn't quite right, then, well, you better sing it better because I'm going to wipe the one that you've just done. How do you feel about doing that now? And it sharpens everyone up because you can't have 50 takes or 10 takes to comp and put together. You just have to get it right. And... Uh, I have to say I agree with you. you know, it seems I to mean, me that, that yeah, making well, these programs for bland and people, it's flat a lot yeah. of the time. You know, flat sounding. I mean, it's uh, it's it's it's. Um, I don't think it gets better. It's getting different, and um, it's lovely that everyone can sit at home and make their own recordings. I think it's magnificent, great fun for people. I think it's.
great. I love all of that. Um, I think that's what's opened up. It's it's a tremendous hobby for a lot of people. Um, and I think there's the excitement. And maybe that's where a lot of these courses are useful. You could maybe go and do a wee a course now and again and learn a bit more about it. And on that bombshell, Callum, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very so very much for talking with uh, GMI. And uh, good luck with your move and all your future recordings. Oh, thank you, Jed. Very nice seeing you again. Can I have my apple tart now? It's a strawberry tart, and yes, you can. Okay. From me, Jed Brocky, and from Callum Malcolm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>